0: However, standing by right now, is the one and the only, Sean Mooney, who?
1: Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. (laughs) After he threw him off
0: through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's
1: breathing
0: Uh, well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> Who else could it be?
1: Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Prime Time with Sean Mooney once again. And in mere moments, you will hear my conversation with Mike Drosy, better known as Duke the Dumpster Drosey. Uh Yeah, a, a fascinating story, a cautionary tale. Uh, it, we'll talk about his uh, incredible rise and uh, through a well-planned encounter with Vince McMahon. It, that, that, it, that's awesome in itself. Uh, to his arrival in the WWE and his attempt to survive in that world and what happened after. Time to talk trash. Well, not really. But time to talk to Duke the Dumpster Drosy. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, folks, as I have discussed many times on this podcast, making it in the world of professional wrestling is not easy. Uh, to make it in the WWE is incredibly harder. Uh, everything has to absolutely fall into place. And I'm talking about a lot of things. And once you make it, you then soon learn that it is just as tough to survive out of the ring as it is in it. My guest this week is a former superstar with the WWE, Mike Drosi, better known as Duke the Dumpster Drosy. Mike, welcome to Primetime. How are you?
1: Thank you. I'm I'm glad to be on your show. I appreciate you having me.
0: Well, you know, I, uh, I know that uh, was, was Duke a name that uh, you you got as a kid, or is that was that something that came through wrestling?
1: Duke came through wrestling. Actually, Shane McMahon gave it to me the day I showed up to do my uh, initial vignettes, uh, huh. because I had already been wrestling as the garbage man. Yeah. Rock of Gibraltar, but they kept the the character, the gimmick, but of course they wanted to put their own spin on the name for licensing purposes. So, right. you know, I kind of showed up and sat at the office with Shane for a little bit and he goes, we've been throwing around some ideas. Uh, we think it's going to be Duke the Dumpster Drosy and Drosy of course being my real last name so we yeah. went with that and we went immediately went out on the streets and started cutting vignettes on the back of garbage trucks
0: Yeah did
1: you like Duke I
0: mean uh I kind of, you know I always think of John Wayne when I, I hear that I don't know if uh, you're like hey you know okay it works
1: Yeah I always I always did like it I liked the name uh you know of course that was during that time with the real gimmicky characters so I you know anything with a catchy name with some alliteration in it you know, can't you can't go wrong with it. So I thought it was a cool name, too. And I always thought of John Wayne as well.
0: Yeah, and I'll tell you, I I don't care what anybody says. Uh, Rocco Gibraltar is, like, one of the greatest wrestling games yes. <laughs> ever. I, I'm yeah. telling I just think it's awesome. I don't know. I, I wish he would have stuck with that because uh, it, it's it's just a great name. I don't know if uh, other people have, have told you that over the years, but uh, it's a great one.
1: Yeah, one of my frat brothers gave it to me at the University of Miami. <laughs> really? really? <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's great. How come, I mean, how did that go away? I guess things just evolved, but.
1: Uh... What do you mean, the name? Yeah, I think it's a great, I don't know why I At that point in time, they were bringing in a lot of new people, and I was relatively new to wrestling in general. I mean, I had done quite a bit of stuff down in Florida and a little bit in the Caribbean and stuff, but I really didn't have a name. So in the interest of completely owning you as much as they can they yeah. you know put new names on people they tried to even put like the name mastodon on vader when he first came in you know that's so much they wanted to change people's names so yeah they wanted to completely change whatever you were and own it so that's why they came up with duke the dumpster instead of yeah. rocco gibraltar
0: well that's such a big part of professional wrestling and i tell you when i was with the the wwf you know gene had mean gene but you know, what do you do with Sean Mooney? It's just uh, you know, Moon Man. Uh, that that probably wouldn't have done too much. So I've yeah. always been <laughs> just never got some. my moniker. <laughs> Maybe you could have come up with something for me. But anyway, we're uh, uh, we're starting here with names. But uh, people are always interested in the path. Uh, you know, like where does this where does this person come from? Because you know, Mike. Uh, so many people that we have uh, on as guests just have incredible stories. And they come from, in many cases, you know, humble beginnings, and pretty much true to a man, and I should say, woman as well. Uh, they, they, they are used to working for things. Nothing comes easy in their lives. Um, tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, early on, how you how you grew up, and and how you ended up getting into wrestling.
1: Well, I mean, I had a good life growing up. I wasn't like rich or anything like that by any means. Yeah. But my dad was an attorney as you know we had talked about earlier and and my mother was a microbiologist, but uh you know they had four kids wow. and they were working but um for me uh, I started i remember I worked my first job <laughs> as a dishwasher getting paid under the table at an Italian restaurant when I was thirteen years old cause mm-hmm. that's the way my parents were they they you know they instilled that kind of work ethic in as go out and get a job and earn your own money mm-hmm. um and I've always been the kind of person when I wanted something, I would go for it and And I knew pretty early on, uh, I mean I was interested in professional wrestling early on, uh, yeah. then about the time WrestleMania One came around, that's when it was cemented that that's what I was going to do, And no matter what I was doing in school or work or any other uh, aspect of life, I was always working on professional wrestling through those years, uh, trying to prepare myself to someday, you know, hopefully work for, if not the World Wrestling Federation. Back then, they still had a few territories, so I was going to work somewhere, and that was the plan.
0: Were you a a really big kid, or did you get the size later? I mean, how did uh, because I know, I mean, you were a pretty good athlete in high school.
1: Yeah, when I was uh, I remember distinctly when I was, when I hit the growth spurt was in junior high school, which they call middle school now, but junior high school, my history teacher would at one point this was eighth grade every week he would take me next door to the health classroom and weigh me and that's when I (laughs) started gaining weight and putting on size and uh yeah I was like in seventh grade I was wearing a size 12 shoe so yeah I wasn't small and uh yeah I was big through high school and I played some football and I wrestled in high school and uh yeah I was always pretty big well,
0: you know, and a, a lot of people though that that have that kind of size early in in uh, you know in life. You you said maybe junior high there, but it takes a while. Even if they possess this athletic prowess within them, it takes a while until you learn how to use it. Um, was that the case with you? I mean, was it like later in high school that you? really started to see what kind of an athlete you were or when did it happen for you?
1: No, I think at an early age, when I was a kid, I was really athletic around the neighborhood. And Mm -hmm. uh, when I started growing and getting bigger, I still kind of moved like a smaller person, which a lot of people have said over the years, that's kind of the way I moved in the ring, like even back in the WWF WWE days when I was wrestling I could I, I moved really well for a guy that was 6'6 310 pounds or whatever so yeah I mean I, I was always pretty athletic and was able to move around pretty well
0: yeah and you went you went to school uh did, were your plans was it to just get a degree I mean you always had this uh you know idea that you wanted to be a professional wrestler and this was a backup plan uh what what took you to college
1: That is exactly what it was. It was a backup plan. Um, My mother who over the years had always given me great advice. One of the things she said to me was before you go get a college degree. So you have something to fall back on. And, and the interesting thing about it was she, as I stated before, she was a microbiologist. She worked in a laboratory that was uh, connected to the university of Miami. So, as long as I could get a good enough grades in high school to get in, I had free tuition to the University of Miami. They call it tuition remission. Wow. So that even added more incentive to take advantage of getting a college degree before I started to pursue wrestling. And the plan, the plan was <clears throat> finish school. And I had these promotional packages and all this stuff. I was going to load up the car and just start driving around the country (laughs) and try to get a job somewhere. Uh, And that's almost what happened. But, yeah, mom gave me really good advice. She said, finish college. And that ended up being great advice because I had needed college to fall back on after I left the wrestling world. So.
0: But I mean, what what were you studying? I mean, I mean, was it a serious degree, or you just said, uh, you know, basically liberal arts? I mean, I mean, the my University of Miami is, uh, you know, that's a that's a pretty well known school. I mean, to get a degree from there is is pretty impressive.
1: Well, I decided I was going to take something that at least was interesting to me. So I majored yeah. in criminal justice, and I minored in philosophy. <laughs> so huh? that I'm was gonna... my major advisor, and I got my yeah. bachelor's of course, in criminal justice.
0: Yeah. So were you, I mean, the backup, were you going to be a cop or, or, or maybe join, uh, you know,
1: one of the uh, agencies, you know, that was a possibility, uh, Uh maybe going to law school was a possibility. Um, but later on, much later on, I would end up going back to college here in Tennessee and getting a master's to become a school teacher. Um, interestingly enough, but so, and I, I didn't, at that point, I was not using the criminal justice degree, but then fast forward ahead to now, I work in a drug court program yeah, yeah. where my criminal justice degree was very helpful in getting me the job.
0: That's pretty awesome.
1: Uh, I mean, considering back then, you probably had no idea that one day I
0: might might use this for something, but, uh, you know, uh, going when you are going to the U, um, did you... You know, were you wrestling independent shows or did this start later because I know uh you know you you did start training um were you doing independent shows at that point or did would that come later
1: I was doing independent shows on the side oh. wherever I could uh get them for for a while I mean there was a dry period there where there wasn't really the independent scene back then was nothing like it is now and but uh then I got hooked up with a friend of mine who had purchased a ring and he started running shows and Especially in into the early 90s and the big point, the, the, the point where we really started running a lot more shows was when Hurricane Andrew hit in 1992. It hit Florida and uh, they had this area, they called it Tent City down there in Homestead, Florida, where a lot of people had lost their homes. They were living in tents temporarily <laughs> and we went down there and we started running free shows for those people. And uh, that grew into a much bigger thing. And then it became a situation where we were running every week or every two weeks or so. It just depended. But somewhere, usually a lot of the schools and stuff uh, were using us for shows and fundraisers and stuff like that. So I was getting a lot more work then. And I was able to kind of put together, you know, a lot of videotape footage wrestling as the garbage man Rocco Gibraltar during those years. Yeah. And I'll
0: tell you what's what's really impressive to me is uh, you know I, I don't know you're 22 or somewhere and you have this uh, wherewithal to I mean to self promote yourself to you know to put together I, I mean I can't even imagine uh, guys trying to get into the business were thinking like you did like you did because yeah you know, maybe they tape matches maybe they sent you know, you know they do some garbage match at some independent show and they have somebody get their little VHS camera out and then they send this rotten tape. But I mean, you, you put together a whole promotion and, uh, what, where did you get the idea to do this? Cause back then, I know there was not a lot available. You weren't pointing and clicking uh, to put anything together. So, uh, how did that, how, you know, where'd you come up with that?
1: Well, first and foremost, I will say mm-hmm. the, the reason I knew that I had to, Get creative and putting together something to promote myself was because of the fact that I really didn't know anybody that was actively wrestling in any of the big companies. I didn't have any relatives or friends, any family members at all that, you know, that could put in a good word for me. Mm-hmm. And I was working in the very limited independent scene down there in South Florida. So there wasn't a lot of exposure for other people to see us. And we really weren't doing any TV to speak of. So I knew. I'm, I was going to have to get creative in putting together some type of promo package. And then I just really put a lot of thought into what would they want to see. Well, they're going to want to see a promo. They're going to want to see maybe a highlight reel and then a match on the tail end of it to see that I could work a match. And that's what I put together with uh, me and my brother and two VCRs. <laughs> and there, there was no point in clicking. There was the button. And reading the counter numbers and writing wow. them on a piece of paper and just meticulously going through, um, laboriously going through, and figuring out every little spot I wanted to tape. And that's how I did it. And, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah so brother-
0: you're doing like these slam cuts. Uh, people don't underst- maybe understand what we're talking about, but that's what I, you know, uh, that's how I learned when I, you know, I've done a lot of production work over the years, and that's how I started. I, when I, my, my first job And they would have these, you know, the big, we had the big three quarter inch machines, but you would do basically these slam cuts and it was, they weren't, you get these big whips in them and everything like that. But I can't imagine doing it. And and let me get this straight though. You would have two machines and then you would roll to a point and I guess you'd have to hit it right and then press record on your other machine. I, I mean, how did you do that?
1: Well, what I did initially is I went through each tape that I had. I probably had 50 or more tapes and I went through and watched every single match. And every time I saw a move or something I thought I might want to use, I, I paused it. I looked at the counter number. I wrote it down and wrote a brief description of what it was. And I had this big long list of all these different spots and moves and things. Mm. And then I went through all those, that big long list And I cherry picked the best stuff and I tried to put it in a certain order. So I put, okay, I put some of the power slams with the other power slams and this move that, you know, like things that were alike or however, and it just came out making sense. And so then I went back with the two VCRs and I put (laughs) one blank tape in one to record. And I each I took each of those tapes with the counter numbers that I had and I would find the camera fast forward to the counter number, push play, push record on the <laughs> blank tape yeah. and just just record that little piece, take it out and go to the next tape. And wow. it took all day. And then we just laid uh, music over it, uh, a rap song. I go to work by cool Mo D, And it was amazing just by dumb luck. A lot of the moves and stuff lined up with different parts of the song. With <laughs> the beats?
0: Really? Just by, by playing it?
1: Yes, it just That's, lined up. <laughs> wow. I, I, is that,
0: that out there somewhere, Mike? I mean, could is it on YouTube or something where you could find find that tape?
1: Facebook page. I'll probably post it again, because I post it. People ask me about it all the time. Yeah. I post it about every two or three months. I'll repost it back up to the front. But yeah, it's on my Facebook page. Um, and it was to the point where... Shane McMahon came up to me at my tryout. When they called me, when they brought me up for a tryout, Shane came up to me and I didn't even know who he was, but yeah. he said, Who did your tape? I said, Oh, it was <laughs> me and my brother and two VCRs and a eight track reporter. <laughs> so he was just kind of dumbfounded by that. But it was well, it turned out pretty good. I think I got lucky in a lot of ways. But
0: well, uh, you know, and Mike, you can say that, but uh, you know, it's hard work luck. Um, and, and the reason I, I wanted to bring that up, and, I, and, and especially with, with the folks listening, you know, there's a lot of, of people out there that uh, maybe, maybe want to get into professional wrestling. That's awesome. I, I wish them well on that. But to me, there's, there's lessons here uh, what, for whatever you want to get into. Because you went way beyond. Like You were thinking, okay, how do I set myself apart from what everybody else is doing? And you took that even further which uh, impressed me even more because I I kind of went through a a, a similar situation with Vince McMahon, but tell everybody, because he he had this vision, uh, Mike, I know you had this vision that you were going to pack up this car with all your tapes and pictures, and you were going to go on a barnstorming tour, I guess, across the country and and get jobs where you can and see what would happen.
1: But you did something before that, that changed your life. Yeah, during that time, when I was just finishing college, this is 1993, May of 93. And I was working as an overnight like security guard at a beach mm-hmm. club out on Key Biscayne. And uh, I just remember I was, I was already getting ready to pack up. I had already given my notice. I was preparing to leave. And one day I was reading the newspaper at work, like I always did. And there was an article about, um, you know, Hulk Hogan and Vince McMahon and the, the scandal that was going on at that time, the steroid scandal and everything. And Hogan yeah. was jumping to WCW at that time. And um, it was talking about the Nat P convention, which is a TV executive convention. You, I'm sure you know about it. And mm-hmm. it was in the Miami Beach Nat Convention. P, yeah, they like, call it. N-A-T-P-E <laughs> yeah, Nat, P, Nat P, yeah. And it was in the Miami Beach Convention Center, and they were talking about how Hulk Hogan was there, and everybody was like all excited about it. And then like one little sentence at the end of the article, Vince McMahon, who was also in attendance at the convention, had no comment. And -hmm. I went, holy shit, he's here in Miami. Mm -hmm. And uh, I called a couple of my buddies, and uh, one of my buddies, a guy named Willie, he said, I said, listen, I have my promotional package. I need to take it to him. And my buddy Willie said, listen, if you walk in there and you see Vince McMahon alone, you better jump on him because he won't be alone long. That was a very good piece of advice. And then what I did was one of the members of this beach club that I worked at overnight, uh, you know, it was for people that owned homes on Key Biscayne and they We're pretty wealthy people. Well, one of them was the vice president of Channel 2 down in Miami. So he happened to have credentials to get into the NatP convention. So I put on a suit, and I took his credentials, and I basically crashed the convention like I was an executive. Mm -hmm. And I walked in there with that thing hanging from my, my neck, and sure enough, I walked up to the World Wrestling Federation booth area, and there was a big group of guys all the agents and stuff were mulling around in a circle drinking coffee and then off to the side by himself was Vince McMahon drinking his coffee and I just made a beeline right for him and when I walked up his eyes kind of lit up because I think he thought I was an executive from a tv station (laughs) (laughs) and I just pitched him real fast hi my name is Mike Drosy. I live here in Miami Florida I've been wrestling for nine years and I'd like to work for you in the World Wrestling Federation. And I, you know, and we had a little short conversation and I handed him the promotional package and he gladly took it. Mm. Um, I don't think he does that to this day. He doesn't yeah. do that stuff anymore. But uh, he, they had J.J. Dillon call me like five days later to bring me up wow. for a call. Yeah. Now, it's hilarious. As Stan Lane tells the story. I walked up. And I just started gibbering, hello, Mr. McMahon, my name is Mike Josie. <laughs> <laughs> Getting it all out, yeah. That way, but that's probably the way it sounded. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I made that pitch, and then I got the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> so.
0: Well, I, I'm telling you, though, that's, that is that uh, is really incredible, because how many people, first of all, first of all, people would say, I could never do it. Yeah, I'll never get close to him. I'll, you know, and you can go on and on and on, but, uh, you know, you took that shot and, and the resources that you, you know, what you went to, you know, you get you, some guys an executive, Hey, can I use your credential and get into this place? And, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's a but a lot of people you could say, yeah, I just, I was lucky. I just, but a lot of people wouldn't even think about it. They said I couldn't do it. I just can't do it. And it's like, that can't comes in. And back then, uh, you know, I, you're, you're, you're probably very right today. you, couldn't do that. Vince wouldn't be sitting at this place, uh, you know, over at a table drinking his coffee, but there are opportunities like that. And and you take them and, and uh, it saved
1: you from uh, a lot of gas, uh, you know, (laughs) driving across the country. Very true, And that's the thing though. And like you're saying, it's, that's a big part. I think of being successful, chasing whatever your dream or your passion is, is you have to recognize opportunities when it's in front of your face. And you also got to have a plan just in case the opportunity presents itself. And I did, I had a plan and uh, it just kind of came together. You know, there was a, it changed a bit when I found out he was in town, but still that was the plan. I was going to do that. I was going to walk up to him somewhere, hopefully, and pitch him. I was going to walk up to promoters at other companies and pitch them the same way. That was the plan, but it just got fast forwarded and, uh, jumped into hyperdrive when I found out he was there, and I had an opportunity to go in and, you know, try to make the big sell. <laughs> so no, and it worked.
0: You, you did, yeah. I mean, and it, it's like the it's kind of the old adage that, uh, you know, you got to move the universe. The universe doesn't move for you, That's and right. uh, and you did that. Now, uh, on that vein, I mean, because you get this
1: tremendous opportunity. And how old are you at this point? 20 I, I, I was probably. 24 23 24 because I took a two-year leave of absence in the middle of college so I was a little bit older than most graduating college yeah.
0: but as but. far as, uh, as 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 wrestling uh, sense and, and experience um, are you are you still pretty green I don't know what uh, you know you said it had been in, in South Florida and not to say there isn't wasn't you know good wrestling in that but at this point I mean are you, are you ready for this uh, you, you've got the willingness but uh, as far as experience and you know were you ready?
1: Well, I'll tell you at that moment in time, I thought I was definitely ready. I thought mm-hmm. I was the greatest wrestler that mm-hmm. ever graced a wrestling ring. Right. Uh, it, it, not in a necessarily an egotistical sense, but I thought I was good. And I also thought I had good ring psychology and I also thought I understood the business politics of the business, mm-hmm. but I came to find later, I really didn't, uh, up there at that level everybody's the greatest from wherever they came from and they're all good and uh, uh, but uh, i mean i was good and i knew i moved good for a big guy but hindsight uh, yeah i was i was green i was clueless in a lot of ways and i've said that before i just i realized later i was pretty clueless uh about a lot of the things and and a lot of the aspects of the business but, uh, I mean, you know, it is what it is. And I did my best to try and learn it, uh, as quickly as possible. But yeah, it was, I thought I was one of the best. I mean, I, I, I was one of the best coming out of South Florida at that time, And but yeah, it's a different world up there.
0: Well, you know, I was going to say, and as I mentioned, when we started our conversation that, um, you know, there are two completely different worlds and, and, uh, you can be the, you can have the greatest, uh, look, you can, uh, be able to work, be a great worker. You can have this awesome, uh, you know how to work the crowd, but you've also got some really dangerous waters backstage. And, uh, was what's that something that you learned real
1: quick when you, once you got there? Well, I, you know, I, what I tried to do is I tried to be friends with everybody. And, uh, you know, I came to find out later that you want to be friendly with everybody, but don't try to be friends with everybody. Because yeah. I would, I learned real quick that people that, to your face, they were your friends, mm. you know, when it came down to it, they would stab you in the back pretty quick. And uh, the problem mm. with the way I approached it at that time is I took stuff like that personally. And, man, mm. you really got to have a thick skin. It's like any other part of the entertainment industry in general you really gotta have thick skin um and and, you know you gotta be able to handle uh rejection in all of its different you know forms and there's quite a bit of rejection within the company itself in professional wrestling so um and i would take things personally you know i i just it's expected that I, since I had a good attitude and I was working hard that everything was gonna work out for me the way it should. and it doesn't exactly always come out that way. Sometimes you gotta they put you on the back burner and you you know you gotta you know take it and deal with it properly. Um, and later I would find I didn't deal with things properly when that really happened. It happened a couple times to where you know promises are made and then broken. Yeah, and man if you can't handle that you, you're not going to make it and like I said I took it personally and instead of working even harder which is the right thing to do I kind of fell back and developed a bad attitude and that was the beginning of the end for me
0: well you know and I'll tell you uh, I can relate in in some ways about what you're talking about because I remember you know and I came from a different world Mike I was uh you know i never worked in professional wrestling before that. I came, this is when, you know, in the uh, I, I got there in 88. It was at a time when Vince was bringing in a lot of people from the outside because he knew in order to improve uh, the quality of uh, what he was putting out there, he had to get people that had expertise that, w- that were not, you know, from the world of professional wrestling. So you could imagine what it was like at that point. You know, Kayfabe was still around. You had guys, uh, these generations of uh, families that had been in the business. You had guys coming from other places, and then you had these outsiders. And so people, you know, you walk in the locker room, people are speaking Carney, and so you can imagine. You know, I'm this <laughs> this green kid who doesn't know anything. Uh, but the best piece of advice I ever got was from uh, Alfred Hayes, who I was very close to, and and uh, and Gorilla Matsun, uh, who told me they said, look. Uh, you can be uh, friends with the boys, but you never get too close. And always remember, you're never gonna, you're never gonna be one of them. And I never forgot that, and it was uh, the greatest uh, advice I ever received while I was there because, I, could, you know, I could do my job, I could be friendly, but then I didn't go to the bars, I didn't go to party with these guys, I didn't go back to their rooms when I was sure. out there. And but I, but tell me more though, from your perspective, because you have no choice. You are one of the boys, but then you have these groups of guys that are veterans. Uh, you got other guys new coming in, trying to find their place. And, uh, it's, it's a cutthroat world. That's the basis of the business. It's, it's, you are an independent contractor. Everybody is trying to work from one day to the next. So how do you, how do you Deal with it. It's it's got. I mean, it's and then you got to go out in the ring and perform, of course. But the <laughs> stress of it has got to be incredible.
1: Yeah. Uh, it 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 was definitely very stressful. Uh, just just the whole concept of live TV with Monday Night Raw was very stressful yeah. for me. But but yeah, it it was an interesting situation when I first came in. Uh, I'll never forget. Uh, we we did a a tour of small towns in, in Canada. And when I first came in, I wasn't drinking or doing any drugs or anything. And I wanted to stick to my guns on that. I was like, Oh, I'm not going to. And I made up some excuse why I didn't drink. And I always got these funny looks from the boys yeah. and they always just, they, they just kind of, uh, they I don't want to say
0: trust
1: you. Yeah. yeah, they were a little standoffish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were wondering, okay, why is this guy not having a beer with us? So that didn't last very long. I ended yeah. up just going ahead and breaking down and start drinking with the boys. Um, You know, that ended up in the long run not being a good thing for me. Uh, But you do feel that pressure uh, if you try to stick too close to what everybody else is doing, especially outside of the ring and outside of the business. Um, You know, in the locker room, though, it was just uh, the politics were insane. And a lot of times they were camouflaged, so you didn't understand – that's actually what was going on that, you know, somebody was trying to circumvent your situation and you getting a push, you know, by doing something to get themselves more of a better spot. Um, I didn't recognize a lot of those things. You know, I Mm -hmm. thought everybody was there and we were all buddies and everybody was going to get a push at some point in time. And that's not how it works. You know, there's, there's a certain amount of politicking that has to go on. And, and that was the big lesson I learned about the boys uh, <laughs> is, you know, I, I believe the first person I ever heard say this was Shawn Michaels. And I think it came from chief J strongbow. He said, in this business, you can either make friends or you can make money. And that's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you get to, I, I just want to be friends with everybody. I, in a lot of ways, I was still a mark. Of the business and I was still a mark for some of the guys I was in the locker room with for God's yeah. sakes. Because I was watching them just a few years before when you were on WWF TV. Mm-hmm. A lot of those wrestlers I was watching um, as I was, you know, still coming up and working the independent scene and finishing college. And so always I was still a fan of the World Wrestling Federation and the wrestlers that were in it. So that fogged my vision and my ability to think clearly in terms of the politics. So yeah, it was definitely, it was treacherous waters to navigate back in those locker rooms. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. And I I guess one of the, the first angles that they had you uh, work with, and you must've been thrilled. I mean, to work with Jerry Lawler and then that kind of kicks you, I I should say, hits you in the head because uh, you know, you had the gimmick with the, the big garbage can and, uh, that turned into, I mean, immediately controversy.
1: So, <laughs> uh, controversy that cost me money and a spot because, uh-huh. you know, they didn't want that. Something he he ended up hitting me over the head with my own garbage can on live Monday Night Raw, and that was just completely taboo. There was, mm-hmm. they, it was the product at that point was so nonviolent; um, they didn't want anything like that. That they yeah. that all of the people in the back were freaking out. I remember. And again, I always talk about Shane McMahon, but, uh, he was working very closely with me when I came in and he came running up He goes, what the hell happened? And I was like, well, you know, everybody talked about wanting to do it. And I said, it was fine with me, you know, cause what happened was Jerry Lawler. I wanted to do it, but I was too afraid to say it because I was brand new. But yeah. Lawler said, man, we should do something with the can. And I said, yes, I'll do it. And they go, Maybe we should ask. And I I remember I asked Jack Lanza because he was the agent for us at that point. Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me with that one squinty eye and he goes, just do it. It's live TV. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So, what, what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> what could happen? So, and then it became this big mess and they, they, immediately they have gorilla and macho man who are doing the commentary. Come on back on live and apologize. And then to add insult to injury, they have Jerry Lawler come back on uh, Superstars the next week and they tape him apologizing for it. I mean, they made it comedy, but still, and it just kind of killed the angle. And then I just don't think that they pursued it uh, with as much, I don't know, fervor as they would have before we did that. I think it turned some people off, certainly some agents and uh, I don't know, maybe even Vince himself that. We had done that, and uh, it kind of threw a bucket of ice water on the whole thing, and
0: yeah, it kind of squashed the character right away.
1: But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, had, here
0: you're doing this thing. You, maybe you had in your head, you know, the, okay, it's good. This is different, and it's going to get attention. You know, this is going to help catapult me. And instead, it had the opposite effect.
1: Yeah, because it it really kind of fell back, and, mm-hmm. and you know, where you would hope for something like that to at least get a pay per view out of it, if not. Right. story through multiple pay-per-views i i didn't get any of that all i got was uh we ended up doing a monday night raw where i ended up beating lawler by a count out because doink and dink the clowns got involved and he jumped out of the ring and was chasing dink so that's how i got a count out i mean this like the least glorious way you could kind of win a match but i don't know i would see things like that like that a lot i guess even after that i would never take it's like i never pinned anybody i always won by dq or count out if i won if i beat somebody
0: yeah so yeah because i mean you feuded with with triple h which uh you know at the time could have helped you out but like you said it wasn't you were never put over clean
1: Yeah, I I beat him by DQ when we did the free-for-all match, and he hit me with brass knucks. Gorilla Monsoon comes out to the ring to reverse the decision. So that was my big victory that made him so mad that he jumped me and uh, attacked me on superstars and cut my hair off, you know, and we started that whole angle. Uh, And I knew even before it started that I wasn't going to win because of his set of friends and the political power they had i knew i wasn't going to beat him Mm -hmm. but my thing was i wanted to turn heel and that's what i had been talking to the office about i wanted to change my look which is why i agreed to getting the haircut as part of the angle um because they were talking about turning me heel for quite a while and Mm -hmm. that never even came about um and then like after the match uh the big blow-off match we wrestled me and triple h And the only singles match pay-per-view I ever had was In Your House in 96. After that, they immediately put Triple H in a 12-second squash against the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 12. So, you know, it just didn't make any sense. I didn't see that they were going to do anything else with it. So, yeah, that's when I really started to get frustrated about everything.
0: Yeah, you know, and at, it just seemed. I mean, we can go through all the, you know, the the whole time you're there, but it it just seemed like, uh, you know, one thing would happen after the next. But also, do you think it was a period of time where you know the the uh, the company as a whole was was floundering, and they had you know, creative wasn't really uh, it was fair, it was poor, you know, and it just didn't seem. Do you credit some of it to that as well?
1: They were definitely trying to find something that worked. Uh, And it would come, just not then. (laughs) Yeah. They were pushing certain guys at the top at that time in main event roles um, that were not completely getting over like they wanted, obviously. I mean, business was down. um, But you know, uh, something else you had kind of alluded to before they were bringing in, they were still bringing in a lot of outside people yeah. and that had interesting, uh, you know, things or, or interesting, uh, problems that would come about from that, uh, people that had, knew nothing about wrestling. Now they had yeah. at that point, they had not brought in outside writers yet. I don't think I was going to ask
0: you that because they were, there were never writers when I was uh, there until 93. Um, yeah. So, uh, but, but you do, you have these, you had, you did have creative outside creative coming in. And I, I had, there was a few failed attempts when I was there. Uh, but I just imagine at that point, uh, before, uh, once, you know, Russo arrived and then things changed, but w- w- was it a constant experiment?
1: at that time it felt like it was. Yeah, Yeah. it it, it was, they would, they would try something and it wouldn't work or they would bring somebody in that was from WCW or somewhere else that was a major player and a big name. And they would bring them in and they would flounder in the world wrestling federation. It just didn't work. And there was a lot of situations like that where there was a lot of trial and error and just a lot of floundering, a lot of trying to figure out what would work. Um, and you know I think it, it, go ahead. I think it's because the product was kind of behind the times. You know, it was still... It, the fans were moving on, but the World Wrestling Federation was not. It was still stuck in a gimmicky character, cartoonish type uh, product at that mm-hmm. time. And it wasn't moving forward fast enough for the fans. And I think that had a lot to do with the difficulties that they were having with finding things that worked until you know as you were saying that Vince Russo kind of came into the picture as a writer and not just the magazine editor anymore mm-hmm. and uh they had other ideas coming in and they as i believe Vince once said they took the gloves off to compete with WCW so that's when things really started to change and then you saw people come out like stone cold steve austin come into their own that were basically extensions of their true personalities, and uh, and uh, the product just got a little bit harder edged yeah. at that time. But yeah, yeah back it, in those, they were they were trying to find stuff that worked, and it was still just so cartoonish and kind of ridiculous that the fans stopped buying it. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe if you would have had that uh, that run with the Lawler three years later, you you, you, know, you might have been part of Generation X. I mean, because that you know timing is everything. And that yeah. certainly would have been acceptable in '97 beyond, right? But uh, <laughs> before that, no. It's oh, it's
1: family entertainment. Heck, me and Lawler would have had a hardcore dumpster match at that point. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah <laughs> it's it is. It's a matter of timing, and also now you you t- and I've heard you talk about it before, but um, uh, your attitude had uh, had a lot to do with it. But also, uh, what about the the influences around you? Because, you know, you're trying to find guidance. You, you're you at a point where like, I don't know what I have to do here. So then, you know, you, you listen to people because, well, that guy's done. He's successful and he must know how to navigate, and know how to, you know, approach Vince. Uh, did you get a lot of that? And uh, it probably wasn't the best advice.
1: Well, there's two main guys that I was hanging with around that time. It was Brett Hart. Who was the champion at that time? Yeah, yeah, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Well, he was he was still the ringmaster when we started hanging out, but he was just coming in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I would try to get advice a lot of times from both of those guys, um, and I think a lot of times Brett was giving me advice based on. If you were, like, a main His event... His position, you're, yeah. You were Bret Hart. <laughs> there was something that I just should not have taken, and uh, some of the advice I should not have taken. And, and uh, it just played out ridiculously uh, in some instances because he was telling me, well, don't do this job. He wouldn't tell me not to do the job. He would say, I wouldn't do the job, or I would refuse, is what he would say. Hmm. So I would refused to well one time i refused to do a job which was actually for steve austin when he first came in and uh oh. my contract oh. was up so and i was just really kind of tired and worn out with the way they were misusing me and it just happened to be that that night they said go get your stuff we're gonna put you in with this guy austin and uh, or with the ringmaster and i went to bruce and said listen i mean i was kind of a like panicking about it. I was like, I don't know what you guys want me to do, man. I'm just, you guys are wearing me you're, you're running me into the ground and I I don't feel like I've done anything wrong to deserve it. What what do I need to do? And so they ended up letting me not do that job to Steve on TV, but it was only because my contract was up. And then once I re-signed the contract and they put me in that deal with Triple H and when we got to that pay-per-view with Triple H and I didn't want to, I didn't like the way things were playing out. I had I, I realized I had zero bargaining position. And, you know, none of the advice that I got from the, you know, World Wrestling Federation champion at that time was good advice for me because mm-hmm. Vince didn't want to hear any of it. Um, I'm sure he would have let me just go home, which eventually they did. But, mm-hmm. you know, they used me up pretty well first.
0: Well, and you you mentioned Brett. And, uh, I mean, do you think he genuinely was – trying to give you good advice but just from a uh, the wrong perspective I mean like you said you know uh Brett was the the lone wolf I mean he was used to you know fighting his own battles or deciding how he was going to do something and it worked for him but do you you know you don't think there was malice behind it like he was he was genuinely trying to help you
1: that's a tough question to answer, but I will say this: I think he knew that he was talking to Duke the Dumpster Drosey, and Duke the Dumpster Drosey was not a main event player at that time. Um, and I didn't really didn't have the bargaining position that he did. Now, was he winding me up or doing it out of malice? Uh, I don't know. I, I I will say I heard a conversation between him and Davy Boy at one point where they were talking about how Davey had basically ribbed Lex Luger out of the company when he ended up going back to WCW. So I don't know, maybe it was some type of fodder for their comedic, (laughs) you know, uh, maybe they enjoyed putting people through pain like that. Maybe he was winding me up. I don't know. Um, But I look back, you know, again, hindsight, thinking about a lot of the situations where he would give me advice and the things that I did and, and trying to talk to Vince the way I spoke to him at certain times. And, man, I don't know. I think he had to be, you know, tooling me along and winding me up in some respects. He had to have been.
0: Well, I I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, uh, During the time that I was with the WWF, I mean, I always thought Brett was just incredibly genuine. I always thought that, you know, I didn't know, ever see that side of him. And I just think, like, from just looking at it, I'm just like, well, maybe he was, you know, trying to give you uh, good advice. But it was, you know, for somebody in your position, that wasn't going to work. You don't call Vince, you know,
1: like... You don't call him,
0: home. but That's he could. It. I mean, Brett could call him and say, yeah, you know, we got to talk about this." But well, yeah,
1: guys like Brett and The Undertaker and Sean, they got a direct line to Vince anytime yeah. they want. I'm sure, yeah. but Duke the Dumpster at that point in time, no. Well, and, what about
0: um, uh, what about with Steve though? I mean, uh, I, I don't know. You know, uh, he, he was climbing at that point. Uh, why didn't you listen to him more? <laughs>
1: Because you're, yeah, you're
0: good friends with Steve. I don't think that ever changed, right?
1: Yeah, well, Steve, Yeah, and Steve was my party friend at the time. And, and, you know, he always had sage advice for me uh, based on his experience coming through, you know, the trials and tribulations in WCW that he had. And he always had good advice. But, you know what, looking back now, if I had to give you a reason for why I did not take his advice and I did take Brett's, I think because Brett was a main eventer at that time and Brett had that belt around his waist at that time and had all the respect, and I thought that's where I would get the best advice. But looking back, almost on every instance where I asked both of them for advice, looking back, Austin gave me the good advice. I just didn't take it.
0: Um, but at that point, was uh, the drinking and, and drugs under control? Had it become a big part of your life?
1: Well, it was certainly to a point where, uh, yeah, every day I I had gotten to the point where during those years, you know, you're taking a handful of pills to get out of bed in the morning. You're taking a handful of pills to go to the gym and you're taking a handful of pills to get in the ring at night. And after the show, you're drinking beer, going to the bar and taking some more pills and then you take some pills to go to sleep. So it was not in control but i was still able to work you know later on it would get to the point where i wouldn't be i would say i was not no longer employable i couldn't hold it together enough to work in a major company like that but yeah it it, it was out of it was getting out of control fast well and i
0: and and looking back to and even during that period of time uh, in the late 80s early 90s that I was always just amazed on how you guys did it, uh, besides the incredibly brutal road schedule. And and a lot of people don't recall, or, or, you know, a lot of our listeners do because they, you know, they were huge fans then, but they would see when you guys would come to their town, they didn't realize that, you know, this was part of a, probably a three week run. And every day you have to wake up wherever you are, uh, you gotta you gotta feed the machine, so you got you know you get up early. You gotta find a gym. You gotta stay in shape somehow. And then uh, that evening, you've got to go back out there and and get in another car wreck. And then uh, and then I, when it's over, find a way to wind down and get some sleep in the meantime. And I'm amazed that so many were able to do it for as long as they did.
1: Yeah, and that's definitely the way it was. And when you had to get up you had to get up fast. When you had to go down at night, you had to go down fast because usually you only had a few hours to sleep before you had to get up and drive again or get up to the airport and get on a plane. Yeah, that's where a lot of the drug use came in because wherever you had to get, you had to get there fast and get up and go. And that that is the way that the road schedule was. And yeah, it was getting in a car accident every night. I like the way you described that.
0: Well, and, and people, it, it, it affects, addiction affects people differently. And you'll, you certainly know a hell of a lot more about it than I do. Uh, you know, that's what you do for a living now. And, and of course your experience, but there are some people that can do that. They can control it to an extent, whatever they, uh, because they're physically, their are chemical, whatever the chemical or chemicals are in their brain, they can do it, but a lot can't. And um, you know, people <laughs> think, yeah, well, when it gets bad, I'll, I just I'll cut back. Uh, it never works that way, right? And and so were you just escalating?
1: Yeah, I was escalating, and I and another part of it was the fact that like when I I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. So when I went home, I continued to party. Where a lot of guys would go home to their wife and kids, and they had to straighten up their act for a few days or a week, however long they were home. I didn't have that that uh i always call it the governor switch I, I did not have any of that so i would come home and party just as hard um so that's why it elevated so quickly for me um but yeah there are people that can control it and it is a def- definitely a difference in the brain chemistry and you know how the pleasure centers of your brain start firing when you do drink alcohol or use drugs and i was definitely one of the addictive personality types because I liked it way too much. <laughs> so you,
0: was your uh, did you continue to decline in the ring, or were you able to keep up that, that level of performance that uh, they expected from you in the WWE?
1: Uh, during that time, I was still pretty good in the ring. Uh, there was a point when I was wrestling Triple H during that feud where we were doing house shows where... I fell out of a ring in Meadowlands arena uh, down to the concrete over the top rope to the concrete in a seated position uh, mm-hmm. on the concrete landed right on my rear end on and uh screwed up my back mm-hmm. really bad that's um, uh, at that point the drug use really escalated, but you know I would just take a handful of painkillers and I'd go out there and get in the ring and it seemed like I was moving pretty well. Well, maybe I wasn't, but um I know at the point where I had that pay-per-view match with him, I was in really good v- visual, physical shape, and I was able to move really well in that match, but I was pretty messed up in that match, mm-hmm. Uh that in-your-house match where I was wearing that green, grayish Duke outfit they gave me. Yeah. Um, speaking of bad creatives, but yeah, yeah, yeah that was... That was probably when it was getting really bad, and I was able to get in there and put on a really good match with Triple H. So, you know, I was still able to keep it together at that point.
0: When did it really start to uh, where you weren't driving the bus anymore? I mean, where it was just, you you knew it was starting to go off the road.
1: The thing about the World Wrestling Federation is it's a very organized company. and there are always people there pointing you in the right direction as to where you need to go and when you need to get there and making sure you get there in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. The day I left the world wrestling federation, when I no longer had somebody pointing me where I needed to go and nobody else was in control, then the drinking and the drug use really just took off. And that became the only thing there was no waking up, and going to the gym or any of those productive things or getting ready to wrestle a match that night yeah. because I wasn't wrestling anymore. So I went home and buried myself in alcohol and drugs and started using even harder drugs. I started doing cocaine down in Florida and just this this constant, I don't know, circular screw-up of doing tons of drugs, drinking alcohol, waking up hungover, doing drugs to get over the hangover, and it just lost complete control. There was no longer the ability to stop drinking and taking drugs on my own because my body physically would not let me because the the withdrawals would be so bad at that point. Mm. But, yeah, it was when I left wrestling, that's when things really spiraled out of control.
0: Yeah, and before we get into that uh, that uh, really dark period, um, what was the the was there a final instance that that ended your career with the WWE, or was it kind of out with a whimper that they just uh, kept using you less and less, and then finally, you know, somebody Vince comes to you and says, "Hey,
1: you know, time to go home." After the Triple H feud, they put me back uh, basically. Doing jobs, putting over any new heels that came in. Um, back at that point, like Mick Foley came in as mankind. I worked with Vader on TV, it went under to him. Uh, TL Hopper, the plumber character, I went under to him on TV. And I was getting increasingly frustrated. And it was like at every TV, I would call Vince for a meeting. And it got to the point where he wasn't even meeting me in his office anymore. We would meet like a way, and he would have. Uh, Jerry Briscoe standing next to him interestingly but we would have these discussions and um, I was just telling him that I was frustrated and at one point I even said if you're not going to use me any better than this just send me home Mm -hmm. and at that point Vince made me an offer he said he would send me to work for Jerry Lawler in Memphis that company um, the USWA and that the World Wrestling Federation would pay me a thousand dollars a week. Now, a lot of wrestlers would say, "Dang, only a thousand dollars a week." At that point in my career, a thousand dollars a week was a lot more money than I was making in the World Wrestling Federation. And uh I just remember, and this is what I think sealed it. When I looked at Vince and I said, "That sounds great. I'm going to need it in writing." Mm. And at that point, he said, "Of course." I mean, he agreed and said, "Yes, of course." But then, shortly thereafter, at a TV taping, Jerry Briscoe came up to me and said, "Vince said you can go ahead and go on home." So, yeah, that's kind of how it went down, and that was, I believe, that was the moment where he decided I was going home. So, and do you think? Do you
0: think that uh, what happened to you with the WWE? Well, how much? How much credit uh, do you take for? You not finding that success and also just them? Because, you know, we've seen it happen time and time again. You, uh, somebody who seems to have everything, and there's really no explanation sometimes why they just don't get over or they don't get the right break or they won't don't work with the right guys. So when you look back now, uh, do, how much responsibility do you take
1: for it? I take most of the responsibility for it. Now, when I first left, I didn't take it. I, it was everybody else's fault. Uh, I was very bitter and resentful and blaming everybody else. But, of course, I wasn't of my right mind either. Um, And I was still bitter for a long time, even after I got off drugs for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. But looking back on it now, I realize a large percentage of the mistakes I made were mine. And I had to own them because the reality was, you know, I made a lot of missteps and uh, did a lot of things the wrong way. And, uh, you know, I really can't blame other people. I've often said that even if at some point the office is not pushing you, you don't feel they are pushing you the way you deserve to be pushed. There's always a way, there are always ways for you to raise your stock by improving your work, improving what you're doing in the ring, improving, you know, the ideas that you have always come up with great ideas. I wasn't doing any of that. I was just, leaving it to chance that eventually the office was going to find a good idea for me and put me in the right situation. And that wasn't going to happen. Uh, I, I, you know, especially after the Lawler feud, um, I really needed to come up with better ideas for myself and I needed to work on, um, becoming a better wrestler in terms of the ring psychology And I didn't do those things. I kind of just went in there every night and did my thing. Uh, I call it being like a script worker. You go in and, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you do your stuff and you get it in. And there's really no true story being told. Well, I did. That's the way I worked. And if I wanted a better position, you know, looking back on it now, and truly understanding where my head was then. If I wanted a better position, I could have worked and done things to make it happen. Um, but I just did things the way I was doing them. It was, in a lot of ways, it was more important for me to go to the bar and have fun and be buddies with the guys than it was to improve my work. Um, it took me a long time to realize that, but it's the truth. So uh, a large percentage of it is on me
0: you know and when you leave that world uh you know back in back in the you know when i was there and i it, these guys were absolute rock stars i it didn't change much after that even when the business was down and you get used to that life i mean you are a famous person you no matter people recognize you where you are you're celebrated, and no one can ever replace that um adulation that when you know how to work a crowd and you and you know how to and you hear it and it's in your head and then suddenly it ends uh i have to imagine that attributed uh, a lot to where you ended up going and how bad did it get
1: well and it's it's uh, interesting that you say it like that because that's the i think that's the biggest problem with a lot of the guys that ended up You know, falling into addiction and ending up dying for different reasons at early ages, the adulation and and those things that you talk about are like a drug in and of themselves. Walking out that curtain every night Mm -hmm. is like a drug in and of itself. And when it is all of a sudden gone, like in the snap of a finger, it's gone. Um, most people are not prepared for that. Yeah. Now add to that somebody that's already using a lot of drugs and alcohol and you really have no healthy way to cope with that loss. It's a huge loss. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. You are a star in a lot of respects. You're a star. Yeah. And, uh, and when it, and when it's gone, that's like a major, it's like somebody or something died in your life. It's gone. and, all of a sudden there you are alone without any of that. And a lot of guys miss that rush and that feeling to the point where they use more drugs and more alcohol to take its place. Uh, and that's certainly what I do when that was gone, all of a sudden, like when Jerry said, you can go home and I, and when it truly set in and I realized it's over, um it was it was a tough pill to swallow um and i did not do a very good job of of coping with it and dealing with it i just used more drugs and drank more alcohol and got worse and worse um it's a wonder i didn't end up being one of the guys that uh, died because it was real bad at, at one point um, people often ask me if i regret that I wasn't, you know, I left right before the Attitude Era. I mean, like, right before the Attitude
0: Era.
1: Um, I was still there when Stone Cold did the Austin 316 speech, and I left shortly Mm -hmm. thereafter. And people often ask me, do I regret the fact that I wasn't there for the Attitude Era? Well, I regret the fact that I wasn't there uh, thinking about a lot of the things creatively that I could have done and a lot of the money I could have made but the reality is, uh, at that point, they had really eased off on the drug testing. Matter of fact, I think they stopped drug testing for quite a while. And if I had been there during that period, out there on the road, living that lifestyle, and with no drug tests, man, I would have been—I would have been one of the statistics. There's no doubt in my mind. So. Really? Yeah, I really got to look at it. I, I, it took me a long time to look at it that way, but that's the reality. Is yeah, I didn't become rich and famous, but I'm still here. You know, I'm I'm still alive uh, because if I had hung around, there's a good chance I probably wouldn't be here because I was one of the craziest partiers. I mean, you know, we 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 did some crazy partying back then. For well, even the fact that we were being drug tested, you know, there was a lot of prescription drugs and a lot of alcohol being consumed so yeah
0: yeah it's and you you describe that and it's the same it's a lot of professional athletes i mean former nfl players you see the stories all the time nba players that uh you know it's the mugshot because unless you find something to replace that uh it doesn't matter these guys have millions and millions of dollars and they blow through it or whatever but uh for you i don't imagine you had a lot of money uh, nope. and you're falling deeper and deeper into this drug and alcohol addiction. I mean, how did you even pay for it? How could you, I mean, that's, they're not cheap that those pills. Uh, and, and I think, I mean, how many of you were taking a day at one point when I mean, you say like a 60 or something?
1: Yeah. At the highest point where I was oh, taking, yeah, pills, yeah. I was yeah. still taking pills like orally. Uh, I got to 60. 10 milligram hydrocodones a day, where I would do it three times a day, take 20 of them at a shot, 20 pills, and I'd take 10 and 10, drink them down, boom, boom, and go along with my day. And I would do that three times a day. Um, yeah, they were very expensive. Yeah, I'm, I mean, what are we
0: talking? I have no idea
1: what then, how well, much did it cost days, you. I think they were like $4 a pill. Now they're like $10 a pill. It's the ridiculous street values, but, but still 60. Um, I mean, that's
0: <laughs> every day. You're talking, and I don't know what else you were taking, but you're talking, you know, two hundred and fifty bucks or something like that, just for, uh, just for bills. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I mean, where, I how would did you afford you that? Out bouncing in the strip clubs, I would make money there. You're wheeling and dealing, you know, you, and you become part of this this subculture out there in the street where, you know, you're you're scheming and scamming to make money, and and I even I sold drugs even back then. I would there was a period of time where I sold cocaine. To, you know, make ends meet and make money. And I would use cocaine. I would use a lot of the money to get the pills and, of course, drink alcohol. And <clears throat> But, yeah, I mean, I was doing whatever it took. Um, and that ended up, uh, when I re- ended up relapsing, and I you know I'm moving ahead here, but I fell right back into that subculture out on the street, but here in Tennessee. And that's what ended up getting me busted. Because I fell back into that wheel and dealing crowd where you're buying and selling, trying to get what you need because it is so expensive. Uh, that's why so many people end up stealing and, and doing all these uh, yeah. other types of crime that are not necessarily drug crimes, but they're related because they're feeding a substance abuse problem. Yeah.
0: So how did you clean up enough to become a coach and a, and a teacher?
1: Well, when I originally moved to Tennessee, it was right at the end of 2002. Mm -hmm. I was was in Miami and basically all my resources had run out. Uh, I couldn't, basically I couldn't get out of bed really anymore. I was just laying in bed, drinking alcohol and using drugs whenever I could get them. And a lot of my resources and my credit with the drug dealers and the liquor stores ran out. And one day in withdrawals, my body locked up and I had to be taken to the emergency room and they shot me up with morphine just to get me moving again. And a couple of days later, my family who had all mostly moved up to Tennessee, flew me up to Tennessee to go to rehab for the first time. And mm. it was right at the beginning of 2003 when I came out of the uh, detox at Vanderbilt hospital. And, um, I remember I got out of rehab and they said, you need to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. No problem. And I probably went to like three meetings. Mm. Um, because I decided I was going to get my life back in order and I was going to do whatever it took because I lost so much. I was so angry at myself with how far I had fallen. That I went back to college at Tennessee tech university and got a master's degree in education. Um, and I became a school teacher and a coach and all of those things. And I, I worked in that job for about 10 years um, hmm. though, probably the last three or four was when I had relapsed and uh, fallen back into drugs, which is why I lost that job because of the drugs and, and all the addiction issues, but more so the legal issues in the end. Yeah. Uh, that's why I lost it. But yeah, I mean, I, I had an interest in becoming a school teacher. Um, when I was growing up, I had difficulty learning. So I wanted to become a special education teacher and that's what I did. Um, but the problem was during those years when I was clean that first time, I didn't go to any of those meetings like they told me to. I just mm-hmm. decided I was going to do it on my own. And that's probably one of the biggest mistakes people make is when they get through the physical part of a major addiction and they go through rehab and they get physically clean and they get out of rehab, they decide, okay, I don't need any of this other stuff anymore. I just need to stay clean. And that doesn't work very well. You really need to stick, stay around a good support system uh, of other people that are in recovery to really do it the right way. Um, I think I was, I was clean for maybe seven years and they call it white knuckling it. I was basically clean, but I didn't have any recovery because I was just barely staying clean. And then one foot injury later, and I easily fell right back into it. So that was the big lesson I learned. when i was a teacher and a coach and all those things and i ended up losing all that because i fell back into it i had to really immerse myself in the recovery community and go to meetings and i still go to meetings and i hold meetings now because you know being around people that are going through the same struggles that's what keeps me level-headed and keeps me clean now Um, i can't do it on my own famous last words we always say are i got this well we ain't got nothing so that was the big lesson I learned, but yeah, from the coaching and teaching, it was, you know, I was I was white knuckling as far as the recovery, but I went back to college. I got a master's degree and all those things. Um, but it was the calm before the storm because yeah, in 09, I fell back into it.
0: Yeah, and uh, you, you know, you, and people hear that guy was clean for seven years and like, well, how? Yeah, if you did it for seven years, how couldn't you keep going? And you know, I think you. Uh, said that you'd, you'd started weightlifting again and injured your, your, uh, your ankle. Yep. And, uh, you talk about losing things. You would end up losing your foot, uh, for people to try and understand that they can't, that it's hard for them to to think that you'd get to that point where you would end up sacrificing, you know, a limb, uh, you know, part of your body.
1: Yeah. You, when you're a, the truly addictive mind, um, the, obsess, the obsession with the drugs is so powerful. Um, yeah. In my case, I did. I had a, It was basically an old wrestling injury that got worse yeah. because of the weightlifting, and the foot fell apart. And I was just more worried about getting more drugs and yeah. than getting the foot fixed. And yeah. it, I ran around doing it that way for so long that it got to the point where they couldn't fix the foot anymore. And it got a, a really nasty staph infection deep inside of it. And it was done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so messed up on drugs that it was nothing for me to say, yeah, go ahead and cut my foot off. <laughs> it's crazy to look back on now, but, um, it was just, it was crazy, crazy. It, it, this obsessive way of living, uh, that you, and that's why so many people leave their families and don't take care of their kids and they lose jobs and because nothing else matters. You know, it's just getting the drugs, getting more of the drugs. That's all that matters. Um, And I did it to the point where I lost my foot. Uh, You know, a lot of people take for granted, they think that I'm a diabetic or something. I go, no, I'm just an idiot. Um, Mm. I did not take care of an an injury because I was so messed up and living crazy on drugs that I lost my foot because it got infected. It wasn't from diabetes or anything like that. But you have to reach a point,
0: and uh, I've, I've had addiction in my family and uh, other people that know uh, addiction understand what I'm talking about, that right. you can do everything uh, in your power to help somebody. You can put them in your rehab. You can be there. You could stay with them 24-7. And unless they're, re- they're, they're, they're ready to say, yeah, I, I, I'm there. I've reached that point. Uh, what was the, the moment? What was the point where you finally said, uh, that's it?
1: Warren County Sheriff's Department, detectives, investigators showing up at my back door with their badges out telling me I was mm. under arrest for selling drugs. Mm. That was it. That was the moment. There was no, I mean, it, and, it, and I was devastated because I knew at that moment I had lost everything, but that was also the moment that I was done. Um, I, I knew I needed help to get physically clean and I would have to deal with all the legal issues but I was done with drugs. I can never do drugs and I can never drink alcohol again. And I knew it at that point. Um, You're right. You cannot help somebody that is not ready to be helped. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people that I work with now is things have to get painful enough for us to finally be ready and to surrender. Um, That day things got painful enough for me. Now they call it rock bottom or whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. but I know that vividly, that was the very moment. And I still, uh, I work like alongside of those investigators today. I work for the drug mm-hmm. court and I see them at court all the time mm-hmm. and talk to them all the time. And I thank them every chance I get mm-hmm. because they saved my life that day. It was like the worst and the best day of my life wrapped up in one because I was finally going to be done with the drugs. I had to, you know, I had no choice now. I was forced. Um, and that's what it took. Um, unfortunately, uh, different people's rock bottoms are different. And, uh, that painful situation is different for different people. I see people on a daily basis going in and out of that jail and not caring about losing great jobs or losing their families or, you know, it's just different for different people. But, um, I can honestly say, I know that was the moment when I got arrested, in my school I knew the teaching job was gone and the coaching jobs and everything that was all gone and at that moment I was so horribly embarrassed and ashamed because I knew everybody was going to know my dirty little secret that I was an addict and uh you know there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt that goes along with addiction and and that's one of the major barriers that people have to get over to finally find recovery and, and, and be able to stay away from using drugs and alcohol again. But, um, and it was very painful, but I knew I had no choice. Uh, once I got physically clean, with the help of a rehab, I was willing to do whatever it took to stay clean. And I still do that to this day. I do whatever it takes.
0: Well, you know, uh, uh, the circumstances are incredibly different, uh, but I think of people like Tully Blanchard, uh, also Mark Merrow, who, uh, you know, like when Tully left, he talks that final time and it was done. He was never brought back and he found another path. He's a, he's a pastor. He he uh, preaches in prisons all over the place. Uh, Mark Miro has found his calling to, uh, you know, go out to all these schools and uh, change the lives of these young people. Uh you've traveled a completely different road in, in many aspects, but, uh, do you feel in some ways that you have found that calling that is, as whatever this crazy road that you've traveled that now that you found it?
1: I, I often tell people that I work with that, um, you have to find what you're passionate about in life and you have to pursue that. um, and for me, going through the process of getting clean and, and working a, a program of recovery, um, I realized that I really enjoyed helping other people that were going through a lot of the same things that I've been through mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where it in in and of itself, it has become a passion. Um, and I work for the drug court program. Part of what I do is I work with individuals sort of in a treatment aspect of, you know, I, I teach classes on relapse prevention and things like that. And uh, I'm not going to say I'm a counselor because I'm not, but I basically do the same things that counselors do. Um, but I'm going to school now. I've, I've started back. I'm going through this rigorous program to become a licensed drug and alcohol counselor here in Tennessee. It's like a three year program Mm -hmm. because that's what I'm passionate about. And I want to go work in a rehab, uh, when people are on the very front end of this thing, because I know how dark of a place that is. Um, That is what I've become passionate about is helping people that are, are trying to find their way. Um, because man, it's a tough path to navigate Mm -hmm. in the beginning. Your mind is doing such crazy stuff to you trying to make you do drugs again um that it's really hard to find your way in the beginning that's why so few people are successful for long periods of time um because they don't make it through that initial part Uh, sometimes people get physically clean but man that's just the beginning the stuff your mind the the games your brain plays with you after you're physically clean trying to get you to use drugs you know the stress the anxiety the depression and all these things that people go through um you know i feel like because of the fact that i have walked that path now i can at least in some way hopefully make it easier on the next person coming down the line trying to get out of that life so that's what i've become passionate about
0: yeah and and when you uh you look back on that career with the wwe and in professional wrestling um uh, I, I'm sure that uh, you think sometimes w- the, you wish that that road may have traveled in different directions, but, you know, you made it. You were there. Uh, what are some of the, the, the fondest memories you have
1: about that experience? Ah, man, just, you know, cutting up with the guys in the back, you know, some of the stuff that goes on, just the funny stuff is it's, it's a trip. Now, aside from all the politics and all that, yeah. we still had a damn good time. Um, you know, especially guys like Austin, like I I said before, me and him would ride up and down the roads, just saying the dumbest stuff, uh, you know, having a good old time. Um, because you got to try to have fun because it is, it's a very tough business. Um, you know, not just the politics, but like you were saying before, the physical aspect of it, just traveling that many days and being on the road and moving and, and, you know, from state to state and from country to country constantly moving it's it will beat you down and uh man guys always we always found ways to have fun and and cut up and you know there's always the guys that would rib and stuff that there was just so many ways and that I, i it is like a brotherhood there is a camaraderie about it that is definitely missed um regardless of the fact that most of the guys are obviously out for themselves and furthering their, you know, their spot and getting a better spot for themselves. But still, there is a brotherhood back there. And in a lot of ways, the guys are, you know, uh, I don't know, a solidified group of people that come together uh, and, and try to produce, you know, the show and the, or, or, however you want to put that creatively, put together a show the way we do and sitting in the back, cutting up with the guys or just sitting back there and listening and talking about the business and coming up with ideas, you know, the creative aspect of it. Those are the things that are missed. Those are the things I miss the most about it.
0: What about in the ring? I mean, the uh, events or or working with uh, particular guys that, that, uh, that stand out
1: you know it's it's always and again this goes back to me saying it's like a drug when you get in the when you're in a match yeah. and, and what you're doing with the other guy in there that you're working with is clicking so well that the crowd is just there for every step of it you know coming up going down when you want them to all those great things you know that come about from good ring psychology um having a crowd in the palm of your hands, that is, is—it's again, it's like a drug. And uh, working with certain guys that you just have fun with in the ring, like Savio Vega, oh my God, we used to laugh our asses off in the ring. We used to, I was thankful during a lot of those years, I still had long hair so I could cover my face because the, the stuff that he would say, he would have, like Earl Hebner would be the referee, we would all be laughing. Um, just cutting up in a, in a situation where, you know, normally you should be stressed and worried about putting on the best show possible. And all of a sudden this guy just pulls it, you know, he makes it a funny situation where you start cutting up and laughing. Um, it, it makes you realize, you know, it, it doesn't have to be so serious all the time. And right. you can have fun. you got to have fun doing it. If you're not yeah. having fun doing it, you shouldn't do it.
0: Yeah, you know, and as I uh, we talked about earlier is that, the, you know, the stars have to align. All these things have to come together. Uh, and, uh, it, it happens for, um, the few really, I mean, when you, when you count, uh, the, the number of the icons, as you mentioned, and, uh, not to say there weren't as talented people or, uh, you know, different who could have been the same, could have reached the same heights, but it just didn't happen that way. And, uh, you've had an incredible journey, Mike, and, um, it, you sound like you're in a really good place now and it's, and it's great to hear.
1: I appreciate that. I feel like I am in a good place. I'm, I mean, I've I, it took a lot of learning of hard lessons, but um, you know, I'm I'm definitely content and happy with where I am today.
0: Yeah. And what's next? Uh, you say you know you say you're uh, becoming a a drug counselor. You're you're in school for that. And uh, what are the plans ahead?
1: Yeah, I'm doing that program, um, but I've also kind of falling back into the wrestling business somewhat i'm doing yeah. some uh, yeah i've actually i'm starting a podcast we've actually already taped a couple and they're going really to, you yeah. know i'm
0: telling you mike i was going to say why aren't you doing one because
1: i think <laughs> he'd be great you know i listened to that
0: uh, stone cold uh, episode you guys did and, and you're asking him as many questions as he's asking you and i was thinking he, he'd
1: be good at this <laughs> so yeah tell me about it tell me about
0: the podcast
1: I am doing a podcast. It's called "Talking Trash with Duke the Dumpster Drossi. And I work with this uh, production company called the 60-Minute Broadway. And they have a YouTube channel. And probably within the next week here, my first podcast will go up on YouTube on the 60-Minute Broadway. Um, and I actually tell a story. <laughs> I called it the Ring Rat Olympics, actually. Mm -hmm. The story about a competition that took place in Germany between some wrestlers and wrestling groupies. But that's all I will tell now. But, yes. Uh, I was hoping to get more details. (laughs) (laughs) Talking Trash podcast. With Bukit Adam and I'm working with these guys. And, you know, they're doing all kinds of other things. But that will be, like I said, coming up hopefully this week. The 60-Minute Broadway, I'm going to say it about a million times. I'm just going to keep plugging. But, yeah, okay. I, that's the guys I'm working with. I'm also doing conventions, and, you know, I'm actually getting back in the ring a little bit with a prosthetic. Oh, really? I'm able to get back in the ring. So, hey, uh, Kerry did it. Kerry Von Eric. So why not you? Yeah. So it's – yeah, I thought it was going to be a lot more difficult than it was. I actually got back in the ring and started practicing, and I could move – a lot so, what better. is that? A special boot you wear? I mean, how do, how do you do it? Oh, well, it's a prosthetic leg from the calf down. Okay. It's gone. So, but yeah, it's an entire, but it's a below the knee, which is a lot easier than above the knee. Uh-huh. So, it's a lot easier for me to move around. But yeah, I'm doing, doing some wrestling shows. I got stuff coming up here in McMinnville. I got one uh, March 3rd. Here in McMinnville, I'm wrestling. May the 3rd, I'm wrestling in Newton, North Carolina in a triple threat hardcore match. I don't know why I'm doing that, but yes. (laughs) Oh, great. But yeah, I'm taking some limited style wrestling events as well. So that's kind of what I'm doing. And on the side, I'm doing the classes for counseling and, and all those things. Cause I would like to, you know, there's been an, I call it a, I guess a newfound kind of little resurgence in, the interest in Duke, the dumpster here lately, which is cool. I'm really cool with that. The fans have been awesome. Yeah. Um, no, it won't last forever. And eventually I'll go back to working in the old shoot job, as we say. And uh, eventually I'll be working in a rehab somewhere and continuing to help people. But yeah, on the side, I'm having fun with the wrestling stuff and doing the autograph conventions and stuff like that.
0: Awesome. Well, how can uh, folks get in touch with you uh, so they can learn more? Man, a lot of people are that's way.
1: My social media, you know, uh Facebook. Mike Drosy. I just started a fan page because my personal page filled up. So Mike Duke Drosy is the fan page, um and everything's pretty much under Mike Drosy. My my Instagram is at Mike Drosy, all one word, and my Twitter, which I really don't use enough, yeah. is backwards at Drosy Mike, just because I didn't know how to change the name that they gave me. <laughs> I'm not that technologically savvy, but yeah, I'm on social media. The big one that I've been using is the Facebook page. I've been writing stories on there, which is how this all really started. Um, So that's where people can find me and people can book me for stuff on the Facebook. I mean, that Facebook messenger has gotten me so many bookings. It's insane. So yeah, that's where they can find me on social media.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And, and Mike, uh, best of luck. I hope to see you down the road uh, sometime soon, but uh, thank you so much for coming on Primetime.
1: Sean, I really appreciate you having me on the show, man. Thank you very much.